0: Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us today, and we do thank you, God, for a good day, Lord, in your house, God, Lord, uh, to anticipate, Lord, something from you, and I pray that you'd speak to us and help us, God, minister to us, Lord, and, and deal with us, God, Lord, we thank you for how merciful and gracious you are to us, God, Lord, how unworthy, God, we are, and yet, Lord, you still pity us as a father does his children, and God, I thank you for that, and Lord, we pray, God, that you'd have mercy on us this morning, God, look our way, we pray, God. Help us to humble our hearts before you, Lord, to look into the scriptures, Lord, let you speak to us. God bless your word to our hearts, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 6, we have worked our way down from about 14, talking about these elements of the armor of God, and so I'm going to just back up a little bit to verse 14 and read through here. We're going to start in verse 17 this morning. But in verse 14, he says, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, looking here in verse 17, the the next piece of armor that we come to, is this helmet of salvation. Now, when we were back in verse uh, 14, it said, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And I pointed out to you that when a lot of people go through and study Ephesians 6, they make the breastplate of righteousness to be something more akin to the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so I showed you why I don't believe that that is the imputed righteousness of Christ. I showed you why I believe that it's uh, personal righteousness. So we looked at that, tried to go through those things. Well, when you get down to verse 17, and he talks about taking the helmet of salvation, people try to do the same thing. And, and let me just be clear. Let me just say this, and then we'll move on. I don't have a problem with somebody making the breastplate of righteousness to be a picture or a type of imputed righteousness, the, what you get when you get saved. And the same thing with the helmet of salvation. There's nothing nothing wrong with that. But I really believe, I know that you cheat yourself out of a lot of uh, material. You cheat yourself out of a lot of truth that the Lord could use to help you in your Christian life that would make some sense to you. So it's the same thing with verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. So I don't really look at this along the lines of... Uh, uh, what a man putting on a helmet of salvation when he gets saved. When you get saved, you get enlisted in in this army. You get enlisted in the fight. Well, after you get enlisted in the fight, you know that there is a lot of fellas that are, uh, you know, enlisted in the. Well, maybe not the Marines. At least if Brother Mike was here, he'd fuss at me about that. I was going to say if you could be enlisted in the Marines or in the Navy or in the Army and be eating Twinkies and uh, ho hos and the cakes y'all a little slow this morning, y'all must be all slow, that's okay, but you could be eating all those little, little Debbie cakes, and you know, you're in the army, you're in the fight, but you're not really equipped, you're not ready for those things, and so that's uh, being enlisted, and actually being ready, having your M16, and having your boots on, and having your fatigues on, and having all this other stuff on, that's That's a different matter altogether, and it's the same thing with verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. So, let me just point out a couple of things, and we'll look into the material this morning. Salvation is not always spoken of in the sense of getting saved and going to heaven, right? You understand that? Let's look over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm not sure if some of the shock on your face is just from you haven't woke up yet, but... It's a true statement. Salvation in, in your Bible is not always spoken of in the sense of getting saved and going to heaven. Uh, Israel, many a time, I'm going to show you a place in the New Testament where salvation is not necessarily a man coming to an altar and trusting Christ as a Savior and getting saved. You should do that, but that's not always the term of salvation. Israel, many a time in the Old Testament, went into battle, and the Lord delivered them. The Lord saved them you see how the word is not used necessarily as the salvation of the soul I was swimming out one day I'm just using this as an example I, this hasn't happened to me but I was out swimming at the beach one day with all my clothes on with all my clothes on alright I was out swimming at the beach one day people are strange man get out at the beach and people get this mindset to where everybody wants to see you with your clothes off spare us You offended me. You're offending me by not having clothes on. But anyways, you're offending the Lord is really what you're doing. That's the more important thing. But anyways, but you're still offending me. (laughs) Ah! Man, I totally got myself distracted after getting mental images out of my brain this morning. But I was out swimming at the beach and stuck my hand up. Hey, I'm drowning and a lifeguard came out and saved me. That doesn't mean that I'm going to heaven. That means I was in danger, and somebody delivered me from the situation that I was in. Got that? All right. First Timothy chapter 4, before we get any more crazy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, look in verse 16. Paul said to Timothy, he said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Simple point of the matter, just from this verse, all I'm trying to point out to you is that You know that salvation is not something that you do. You don't save yourself, and you don't save salvation in the sense of going to heaven. You don't save yourself, and you can't save then anybody else. So when he talks about salvation here, he's not talking about going to heaven. Salvation, now when I die, I'm going to heaven. What he's talking about is the salvation of your life. Your life needs to be salvaged. Well, how do you do that? By taking heed to the doctrines which you've learned. And in doing this, you're going to save yourself and them that hear you. You see that? Uh, Let me just throw this in there and we'll move on. Uh, One of the things that throws people off is that the King James Bible was written, it was translated, put together in 1611. And so it's Elizabethan English, and so a lot of folks look at the King James and they say, well, it's so hard to understand. And sometimes it is a little bit tricky because it was written in the common tongue. It was written in the vulgar language, not dirty or unclean. Vulgar meaning common. It was written in the common tongue of that day and age. You're not, you don't really... Uh, You go read something by Shakespeare and then read your King James Bible and you can see some similarities, but Shakespeare's writings are very, very elevated as far as complexity. Now, you really got to exercise your brain. That's why I never enjoyed reading Shakespeare when I was in high school. World literature, American literature I could deal with, but world literature I had a hard time with and that was one of the reasons. But anyways... So when you read this stuff, people look at it and they you have to be analytical. It's it's a catch-22. You have to pay attention to what you're reading in your Bible. But you can be uh, too cerebral. You can be too brainy. And you'll miss what's sitting right in front of you on the page. Just read the Bible and trust the Lord to show you and just use some common sense. I don't know why, but I feel a little led to just elaborate here for a second. I have talked to guys that will pull out a verse and say, uh, for example, I'll just give you an example. I'm not going to run the references because we need to get moving. But in Lamentations, there there is a verse in Lamentations. Lamentations is written to the children of Israel, if you didn't know that. It's written about Israel. Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah was one of the last prophets before Israel went into captivity to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And so when he goes through Lamentations chapter 5, the Bible talks about uh, Israel being likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Question for you. Please don't answer. Just think about this. I'll answer it for myself. Is Israel Sodom and Gomorrah? Answer, no. You understand that? We're clear? Okay. A couple of verses after he makes this statement, of Israel being likened to Sodom and Gomorrah, he says her Nazarites were X Y Z, and so I had a guy come to me one time and he said, uh, Lamentation says that Sodom and Gomorrah had uh, Nazarites. I said, What? And he opened up the Lamentations chapter five and said, See there. I I I said, No. No, that's, that's not for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's for Israel. He said, well, the antecedent of there is Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that is somebody who was following the, the standard rules of English. What he was saying was correct. What he was saying, the antecedent there, the antecedent of there did point back to Sodom and Gomorrah. But Sodom and Gomorrah did not have Nazarites. Sodom and Gomorrah got burned in Genesis 15, I think, somewhere in the beginning. The, the Nazarite vows did not show up until Leviticus and Numbers. Sodom and Gomorrah did not have Nazarites. Okay. Common sense. Did I lose y'all? <laughs> okay. Anyways, that's what you have to do when you read your Bible. You have to pay attention to things. Just use your brain. And don't don't get too brainy with the with the Bible. Just l- look at it. Trust the Lord. But anyways, all right. So salvation there in the in in First Timothy chapter four verse sixteen, he's not talking about salvation of soul. He's talking about the salvation of your life. So salvation's not always spoken of in the sense of dying and going to heaven. And we also know, I, at least I think we know. I hope you understand that salvation is not limited to the salvation of your soul and spirit. There is also salvation of your body, which has not happened yet. All right, look in Ephesians chapter 1. You say, how do you know that the salvation of my body hasn't taken place? Look at you. I rest my case. And I, I say that trying to be a little bit funny, but you know that's true. I mean, you, the older you get, the more you begin to fall apart. And that's just, that's just the way that it is. Now, the Bible talks about in Isaiah chapter 53, he bore our griefs, he bore our sorrows, he, he, took him, he, he himself took our sicknesses upon him when he went to Calvary. And so a, a Pentecostal, a church of God, assembly of God, they'll run to Isaiah 53 and see there's healing in the atonement. And therefore, if you get right with God, God will bless your health, God will take care of you and you'll never be sick. Well, there is healing in the atonement. There is. That's what Isaiah 53 says. The problem is, the truth, not the problem, but the truth of the matter is, is that that healing, that uh, healing that's found in the atonement does not show up in your body until your body until your body is born again, until it's regenerated. And your body is not born again. It is not regenerated yet. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. Look in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So a Calvinist will come to Ephesians 1, verse 5, and say, See, there, there's predestination. You're predestinated to go to heaven and predestinated to go to hell. That's not what the verse says. He said, you're predestinated unto the adoption of children. Predestination is a real thing. Do you believe in predestination, Brother Nathan? Absolutely. It's right there. What you have to do is you have to define the adoption of children. So hold your place in Ephesians 1 and look over in Romans chapter 8. Let's define the adoption of children. We've been through this stuff, but I'm just trying to lay some groundwork for what we're going to look at here in just a second. Romans chapter 8 what we're talking about is that salvation is not necessarily limited to the salvation of your soul there is a salvation of the body Romans chapter 8 and look in verse 23 and not only they but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit that's to say that is to wit the redemption of our body. So the adoption, the adoption that you find in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, the adoption is the redemption of the body. It's the day where your body is regenerated. That's the rapture. The moment that you're caught up And taken out of here, according to Philippians chapter 3, I don't remember the verse, but it's the last verse in the book of Philippians, he's going to change our vile bodies to be likened unto his glorious body. That is the regeneration of your body. Soul and spirit right now, you're saved. The salvation of your body, it's been bought and paid for, but it's not been realized and won't be realized until the rapture of the church. You understand that? Yep. Any false leg that you have will be left behind. you got a plate in your head that's going to be left behind. Yep. you got a sleeve of tattoos that's going to be left behind. Yep. Brother Chris is sitting over there. Man, that thing will be left right there in the church pew if the rapture takes place. Somebody come in and find that thing sitting there in his pew. Yep. The Lord's going to take care of all of that stuff. Yep. Amen. So, so that's what you're dealing with. And then look in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. This is really a a good set of verses to go over for us to look at. We're not looking at it too deep this morning. These are some good things for you to keep in the back of your mind because it helps keep you in between two heresies. And one of those heresies on one side is Calvinism. You say you're not a Calvinist? Not at all. Not a Calvinist at all. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and look in verse 13. The Bible said, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to what? Well, my soul, man, if there ever was a verse that supported Calvinism, that would be the verse. God's chosen you to salvation. But look at the context of chapter 2. The context of chapter 2, verse 2, the last part of the verse, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Well, what he's getting ready to talk about is things starting at about the rapture and going through the tribulation. And then when he gets, you even look, we're going to look at it a little bit this morning here in First Thessalonians chapter 5, talking about the day of the Lord. Well, that's the, that's the context of what he's talking about. So when he says he's chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, what he's talking about, that, that salvation in Second Thessalonians 2.13 is the salvation of your body. He's chosen you. Look at it one more time. Let me see if I can make this a little bit clear. He's chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. That salvation is a product of sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Both of those things. Well, what happens if you don't believe? Then you're not you're not chosen to salvation. See that it's real simple, amen. So I, I hope, hopefully, I didn't confuse you, and I don't think I confuse you because it's not it's not super hard to understand. So, so two things that we, we I gotta you gotta understand before we get started this morning that salvation is not always spoken of in the sense of of being saved in the sense that now I'm saved I'm going to heaven, and salvation is not only limited to the soul. There's also the salvation of your body. So you've got to define things. So. When you go to Ephesians chapter 6 and he says, put on the helmet of salvation, well, what's he talking about? That's a good question. So look in Titus chapter 2. Let's lay a little bit of groundwork here. Titus chapter 2 and look in verse 11. Titus chapter 2 and look in verse 11. For the grace of God, Titus 2 verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared To all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So, out of that verse, you know, out of those two verses, you know that the grace of God is not a license to live any way that you want to just because you're saved now. That's the problem that a lot of folks who believe that you can lose your salvation that's the problem that they have with baptists we're baptists let me just go over this right quick we're baptists and one of the baptist distinctives is that we believe in the eternal security of the believer we believe that and when you start dealing with somebody who doesn't believe that you or doesn't believe in eternal security one of the things not always it depends on the person that you're dealing with but a lot of folks stand up and say well you believe that a man can get saved and go out and do whatever he wants well, no, we don't really. We don't believe that. It's not that we don't really believe that. We don't believe that. We don't believe a man can get saved and go do whatever he wants. We believe that a man, can go, a man can get saved and do whatever it is that he's going to do and still be saved. Now, you go get saved and do whatever you want, and God is going to deal with you if you're saved. And we'll deal with that here in just a second, Lord willing. But the truth is, is that I'm not going to take away the promise of eternal security, number one, because it's a biblical promise in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, different story. Tribulation, different story. Millennial reign of Christ, different story. It's true. Look in Hebrews, which is where a lot of folks will go to prove that you can lose your salvation. So I'm not going to take it away because, number one, it's a promise to the New Testament church. But also, second of all, I'm not going to take it away to try and force people to do right or you're going to lose your salvation. Because you know just as well as I do that there's people sitting in independent, Bible-believing Baptist churches who believe, who have been taught the doctrine of eternal security, and they backslide. And then there are people that sit in Pentecostal and holiness and assembly of God and Church of God churches who have been taught you can lose your salvation and they have members that backslide just like we do. You say, what do you take from that? I take from that that you're not going to strong arm anybody into doing what's right if they don't want to do what's right. So just teach the truth and let people decide what they're going to do. Amen. 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 You have to be careful with that. That's real tempting. But anyways, so again, Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's interesting to me that that's what the grace of God teaches. You You can stand up and preach the law which grace of God is not lawlessness. I hope you understand that. But you can preach the law and, and people are not going to respond to that any more than they'll respond to the grace of God. Romans chapter 2 says that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You have a preacher stand up and put his finger down your face and folks need that sometimes. I need that. We need that because that's, that's the kind of folks that we are. But that alone is not going to get people to do what's right. People have to do what's right because they love the one that died for them and saved their soul. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For the love of Christ constraineth us, that if we thus judge that one died for all, then we're all dead. Hey, you're gonna, if you're not going to be motivated, if you're not going to be motivated... By do it, to do right because you love the Lord, you're not you're not going to be motivated. You'll talk yourself out of God's judgment. You'll talk yourself out of anything else. But boy. Anyways, let me move on. You see what I'm saying this morning? I, it's a valid point right here in the text, and I believe it just needs to be pointed out. So he says, "Live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world." Verse twelve, verse thirteen, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great, of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So the grace of God teaches us two things. First of all, it, it's a simultaneous lesson. It teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world while at the same time looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the grace of God teaches us to do. You understand that? All right, so look over in verse, uh, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and look in verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse (coughs) 1. Excuse me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Amen. I can say amen to that. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. True statement, we're the sons of God right now. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now look at verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Hold your place in 1 John chapter 3 and go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, just there a minute ago, so go back, hold your place in First John chapter 3, and look in Romans chapter 8. All right, now, First John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Well, what's the hope that he's talking about in verse 3? The hope is there in verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Something's going to be changed about you on the outside. And then when you go back to Romans chapter 8, we just looked at verse 23. Read it again, Romans 8, 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. Verse 24, for we are saved by... Well, there it is, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. Eat every man that hath this hope in him, purifieth himself even as he is pure. Well, what's the hope that he's talking about? Verse 24, for we're saved by hope. It's the blessed hope, Titus chapter 2. We're to keep our hearts and minds set on the blessed hope. Do you see that? So, what happens? Listen, what happens when a man sets his heart on the blessed hope? There's something about that that a—it has a purifying effect. You children, <clears throat> if you'd like to classify yourself as a child, you can listen up real close. You children. There's something about it. There's something about a kid when mama and daddy has said, Make sure you have your chores done. That so long as mama and daddy is not in the driveway, they're not driving up the driveway, there's something about it that just makes them want to have another five minutes of fun. Let's go shoot the BB gun. Let's go burn something down, set the woods on fire. Let's, you know, bust the windows out of the house. Something. That sounds like all boys. I don't know what girls do for fun. and play with baby dolls. I I don't know. But you see, but the moment that mom or dad is in the vehicle and they're driving up the driveway and you know that they're going to ask, did you get your chores done? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you cut the grass? Did you till the garden? There's something, oh, and it's scramble for the last, 30 seconds that they're driving up the driveway and try and get it done. Whereas, if you would have lived, if a kid would have lived that way, the entire duration that mom and daddy was not there, there would have been a motivation to get some things done. The moment that the trumpet, trumpet sounds at the rapture, you know what a lot of Christians are going to do? Oh, where's my tracks? I need to witness well, he's in the driveway. It's too late. But today, today, when you haven't heard the trumpet sound, if you'll live like it could happen any moment, there's, there's something in your heart that says, man, I need to do more for, for the Lord. Brother Nathan, don't you ever feel like we ever do enough for the Lord? You say, why? Because the judgment seat of Christ is coming. And I can guarantee you one thing, every single one of us, when we all stand before the judgment seat, we're all, all of us, me and you, and every Christian that's not here, we're going to wish, man, I wish I'd have done a lot more. Well, see that, 1 John chapter 3, it's a purifying hope. The Lord's coming. Hope is not, I hope he's coming. It's a, it's a reasonable expectation. Did he say he was coming? John chapter 14. He said, I go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. He's coming. Preachers have been preaching this for decades. He's coming. Centuries. Centuries. Not decades. Centuries. He's coming. And it's been going on for so long and now we're in the see in church age and people have got their distractions. They've got their phones sitting in their pocket and they've got this and they've got that and it's just out of sight, out of mind. You don't hear preachers preach about it much anymore and so we're just trying to figure out how we can enjoy life today. And as a result, you know what's happened to the church? It's getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and dirt. You see my point? Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You say, what's the solution? Christians, we have got to get our minds back on the fact, hey, the Lord's coming. You know, when I was a little boy, I say this and we'll move on and look at some more scripture. When I was a little boy, I was born, 1988, I'm sure that makes some of y'all feel real old. That's probably the year that some of y'all graduated high school. I, I, that's pretty funny to me when I hear people say that. I graduated high school in 1988. Man, that was the year I was born. <laughs> but when I was born in 1988, I was born on the tail end of a time where people were living in anticipation of the Lord returning at the rapture. I, was, I came into this world on the tail end of a time when people would leave church. They would say things along the lines of, "If—if uh, if it's either here or there or in the air. Some of y'all might remember that, people was looking for the Lord to return, and then it then it changed to well we'll see you at church uh, Wednesday night, Lord willing. And then it changed to we'll see you Wednesday night. And the the church is in a state where it's bad. It's a bad, bad situation. You say, well, what do we have to do? We have to get our minds back on the fact, hey, man, the Lord's coming. And you know what that'll do? That'll put some joy in your heart. As bad as things get, man, you're going to be delivered out of this stuff. Thank God. So anyways, that's, that's what you're looking at this morning. All right, so look in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. So every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So you look here in Romans chapter 5. Now, let's look here and dive into this a little bit this morning. Romans 5, verse 9. Well, look at verse 8. It's a great verse. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Thank God. Now, verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood. Are you justified by his blood right now? Look at what he says. "We We shall be saved. Well, there's current justification, but there's a future salvation coming. Well, what are you going to be saved from? From wrath through Him. So, see, there's something that there's a salvation that's going to come in the future, and what it's going to save you from is wrath. Amen. Look in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. No, First Thessalonians is in here somewhere. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and look in verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look in verse 8. For from you sounded out, <coughs> excuse me, the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus. Now, pause there for just a second and look at me. Do you see what that verse says we're waiting on? We're waiting for his son from heaven, Jesus. Learn all you can about the Antichrist. Learn all you can about the tribulation. That is not who we are looking for. We're looking for His Son from heaven, with whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. He's not just talking about hell. He's talking about something else. Look in Revelation chapter six. Rev, uh, Revelation chapter six. The the the. Wrath of God is always connected to something specific in your Bible. Revelation chapter 6, and I'm showing it to you in the New Testament, but when you read through your Old Testament, particularly the major and minor prophets, you can see this connotation show up over and over and over again. Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, well, get the context verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman... And every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? The Lord's wrath is always connected with the day of the Lord. We've been delivered from it. Yes, sir. That day of the Lord touches, in some passages, it touches the second advent going into the millennial reign. In some passages, it touches the tribulation going into the second advent. Some passages, it touches just the second advent, the actual day of the Lord, when the Lord physically, literally comes back on a white stallion. It's called the day of the Lord. Depends on what passage you're looking at. But we've been delivered from the wrath that's found there. Why? Because we trusted Christ as a Savior and there's still yet part of our salvation to be realized, salvation of this body. When your body is saved at the rapture, that will be the salvation from the wrath to come. You see that? I hope you can see that. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now watch this. This is real, real interesting here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, look in verse 1. Let's, let me just read a little bit and get some of the context. Take a little bit of time to go through here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and look in verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord. You see that? No question about what he's talking about. He's not talking about the day of Christ. Those are not the same days. Okay, not going to go into that this morning, but we're talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Cross references for that would be Jeremiah 30 talking about the time of Jacob's trouble, which is Daniel 70th week. And that's a time in Jeremiah 30, I believe it's Jeremiah 30, where he talks about, he said, why is it that I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman that's in travail? And he said, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. He's talking about the tribulation. Peace and safety, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. He didn't say we shall not escape, they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. He's not talking to lost people. He's not talking to Jews and Gentiles. He's talking to the church, the church at Thessalonica. You're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Well, why not? Verse 5 Ye are all children of light and the children of day we are not of the night nor of darkness hold your place in 1st Thessalonians flip back to ephesians very quickly ephesians and i believe it's going to be ephesians chapter 5 ephesians chapter 5 look in verse 8 ephesians 5 verse 8 he says for ye were sometimes darkness when you were lost but now are ye light in the lord Walk as children of the light. See, you're not not in darkness anymore. Why? Because I trusted Christ as my Savior. Well, because I did that, that day that he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the day of the Lord, it's not going to take me as a thief in the night. The Lord, the day of the Lord is as a thief in the night. It is. It's going to rock this world. Matthew 24, 25, 26. Those are all things that are dealing with the day of the Lord. It's going to blow this world to smithereens. Lord, the Lord's going to come in and set up a kingdom that will never be taken away. That day's not going to be shocking to me. It's not going to be surprising to me. Why? Because I'm not children of the darkness. I got saved. Now I'm children. I'm a child of the light. That's what you're looking at there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So I don't know about that. Write it down, go home and look at it. Verse 6, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So, the, so he starts out with a doctrinal statement. You're not children of darkness, you're children of the light. Therefore, here's the practical side of that doctrine. Don't go to sleep. Ephesians chapter 5, he said, awake thou that sleepest, and Christ shall give thee light. I'm a child of the light. But, boy, sometimes I get a little sleepy about how I am this morning for some reason. I just get a little wore out, and God has to come in and nudge my heart and wake me up. That's what he's talking about. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night, verse eight. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and foreign helmet, what's he say? The hope of salvation. There's your helmet. Put on the helmet of salvation. What he's talking about in Ephesians chapter six is not getting saved. You did that when you got enlisted. The helmet of salvation is keeping your mind set on the fact, man, the Lord's coming to get us. It's looking for that deliverance. It's looking for the blessed hope, and that the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look over in uh, Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1 and then look in Hebrews 12. So get Nahum 1 in one hand and Hebrews 12 in the other. Everybody's singing the song of the minor prophets trying to figure out where Nahum is. Nahum chapter 1 and then look in Hebrews 12. Give me a second to get there. Nahum chapter 1. Y'all hurry up now. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Nahum chapter 1, look in verse 1. The burden of Nineveh, (coughs) excuse me, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. Boy, you don't hear that God preached about much anymore. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Now Romans chapter 5, I believe it's Romans chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. Let me turn there right quick and find it cuz I'd like for you to know where it's at at least, especially if you're taking notes. I believe it's Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. It's right after the verse that we read in verse 9. Verse 9 says much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Through him, for if when we were, past tense, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Are you an enemy of God right now? Then wrath is not reserved for you. You say, but I've not been the Christian that I should be. Okay, we'll fix that. But let me show you where you're at. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And look in verse 5. He said, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For who the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The lot of a child of God, the lot of the child of God who is disobedient, is not wrath. It's the loving hand of a father who wants to see something produced in the life of his children that is right, that is beneficial. It brings him glory and honor, but it's not wrath. When the Lord comes back in Revelation, we're going to read a little more here in Hebrews 12, but when the Lord comes back at Revelation, he comes back with a rod of iron. Buddy, he is coming back to rule the nations, Well, see, that's judgment. He's coming back as a king. That's judgment. Well, you've already undergone that process of judgment. You say, where did I undergo the process of judgment? Calvary. All your sins. Listen to me. I I believe this is a a very important distinction that a lot of us uh, sometimes really don't pay attention to. Your sins, your sins, past, present, future, Your sins were judged at Calvary. You say, How can you say my future sins were judged at Calvary? Well, when Christ died at Calvary, all of your sins were future. Your sins, past, present, and future, were judged at Calvary. You will never, you will never give an account for your sins. You say, well, then what's the judgment seat of Christ about? It's not about sin. It's about service. You know what the damage is all about when you get wrapped up in sin and in iniquity in this life? You know what the damage is all about in regards to the judgment seat of Christ? It's Hebrews chapter 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The problem with getting wrapped up in sin right now, it's been paid for. Now, it'll affect your fellowship if you don't confess it. But as far as being judged for your sin, that was judged at Calvary. The problem with sin right now is you're getting wrapped up with something that is going to hinder you in this life from doing something for the Lord, and you're going to see the lack of reward when you get into the millennial reign of Christ because Luke chapter 19, the Lord's going to hand out rewards and your millennial inheritance is going to be based on what you did with this life. You enjoy fleshly sins and you enjoy getting wrapped up with carnal things and just don't want to get it right. I understand that, man. I'm a man just like anybody else. I mean, I'm not a woman like any of you ladies, but we're, we're men, we're people. And I understand, man, you get a hold of something and you like it. enjoy it. The danger is that you don't get it right and for two or three years or 15 or 20 years, you just don't get the thing right and God has to put you on a shelf and he can't use you. Well, what's the harm in that? I get to live my life for myself. The harm in that is that you don't get any rewards at the judgment seat. And you're going to have somebody look at you and try your works, your works, God's not not trying to figure out whether or not you're a sinner or not. In your flesh, you're a sinner. That's going to be taken care of at the rapture. But when you're standing before the Lord, in a really technical sense, you're no longer a sinner. But boy, you've got all of this history and this life behind you that you have to give an account for of all the opportunities that you had and didn't do something with it. Or you did, praise the Lord, you did do something with it and now God's going to reward you. God's going to give you an inheritance in the millennium because of those things. So, verse 7 here in Hebrews chapter 12, look back in verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You're an illegitimate child. That's what that word means, bastards. This world has tried to take biblical terminology and turn it into something nasty. And it's, it's a biblical term. I don't recommend you use it because it does have a bad connotation associated with it. But it's biblical. Verse 9, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He, for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. it's not enough it 's not enough in this life that you be, have your sins forgiven. That's wonderful. That 's the starting place. that 's where you have to start. But the thing is is that it 's not enough to just have your sins forgiven. That 's elementary. Now, what you've got to do is you've got to concentrate on incorporating holiness in your life. For what purpose? So you can serve God acceptably. Acceptably. Amen. Amen. All right. So that helmet of salvation, is not connected with being born again. It's, it's connected with having your heart set on the rapture, having your heart set on the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you looking for him this morning? Yes. Amen. That You have no problem this morning that the rapture wouldn't take care of. Amen. Amen. Lord, help us today. God, Lord, thank you for a good time of study. And I pray you'd be with us this morning. God, bless the service this morning. We pray you'd speak to hearts. Bless the folks that are here in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God, went right up against the clock. Take about five minutes. We'll get started five after.